John 12, 20 to 36. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now it is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Altogether, believe, believe in, in the light. light while, while you, you have, have the light, so, so that, that you may become children of light. When, when he had finished speaking, Jesus, had, had, Jesus left and, and hid himself from them. The good news of Christ. Praise to you, Praise Lord, to you Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, everybody. Um, sending this pre-recorded, uh, it's Remembrance Day, November the 11th. Sending this a few days in advance, I normally don't like to do that because a lot can happen <laughs> between uh, Thursday and Sunday. But uh, Kathleen and I have a grandparents, uh, grandchild gig this weekend. And all four of our grandchildren are coming to be with us Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we are very excited about that. And I could have probably pulled off a live message on Sunday morning, but we just thought just to take away the distractions, we would we would uh, do this beforehand so that we're just free to enjoy our grandchildren and, and hopefully join you all on Sunday together as well. So today we're continuing our teaching on um, embodiment and seeing the good news through the eyes of John the Beloved. And today's text, and topic is, is about living by dying. Jesus 
uh, is talking a lot about death these days as we work our way through the text. As we said a few weeks ago, this theme becomes prominent in this part of John's gospel, both in the narrative and in the teaching. And it's especially true in our text today, as Jesus speaks very openly and candidly about his impending suffering and death. And embodiment, it, how it speaks to us is it requires that we also come to terms with our own mortality and impending death, and that life is a gift, but life includes suffering. And what do we do with that in our story? And so there's a backdrop to this discussion in, in John that begins with the resurrection of Lazarus. So there's this kind of backdrop of resurrection to all this talk about death that we have to keep before us. And of course, Jesus is also not only anticipating his own suffering and death, but also his resurrection. And as we sang last Sunday, always remembering this is not the end. Death is not the end of the story. In fact, death will die. And in fact, it's dying now. It really is, even though it may not seem like it. Uh, we are a death-denying culture, and it's all around us. But we don't like to talk about it, except perhaps maybe on Halloween. Yet death is a part of life. And, and not only do you and I have a common destiny in that we will all physically die, uh, we experience many small deaths through our lifetime, don't we? Uh, uh, these may occur through griefs and losses, whether of a loved one, a job, a family member, a broken relationship, a divorce, uh, a life debilitating illness or accident, the loss of a family pet, uh, a severe disappointment. COVID has its own set of many deaths, hasn't it? And by the way, it was so amazing just to be together with you all last week. And, and I know not everybody made it, some of you joined online, but just so grateful for that first kind of baby step to begin to meet again. So grateful to Matt and, and Dean and Tay and Nathan. These guys work so hard just to get us set up so we can live stream. And so we're, we're gonna continue to take these steps month, month by month, and we'll keep you posted on our live gatherings. But it was just so good, but we've all experienced the death of not being able to meet. And, uh, you know, sometimes we have to move. Uh, we get evicted from a house or your children uh, grow up and say goodbye and you become an empty nester. And in all of these deaths, there is a letting go, isn't there? Uh, that's required. And it involves entrusting someone or something, ourselves into God's hands. And that's not always easy because we need a God with skin on. We can't see him sometimes. So imagine your life, maybe this will help, in terms of four seasons. Uh, the four seasons of spring, summer, fall, and winter. And in our lives, spring would be the time of new life and growth. And it's our conception and birth or coming into the world and being Children and youth and young adults were learning and were growing. 
And summer would be our kind of prime of life when we've, we're educated, we're in our vocation, and we have the energy and productivity to do what we were born to do. And uh, autumn would be a time of letting go again and transitioning to a season of eldering, of mentoring, of grandparenting. Autumn is harvest time. It's the time to harvest your life the fruit of all the seeds you've sown and the life experiences you've had, both good and bad, both painful and joyful. And they are a gift to be a loving presence to the younger generations. And then winter is a time of preparation for death, isn't it? It's not so active, but still you're a loving and beloved elder in, in, in family and community. And, and uh, Another way I've heard this said, you've, sometimes you've probably heard me say this before, that in, in the springtime, you, when you're born, you're, you're your parents' kids. In summer, you're your kids' parents uh, or, or their uncles or aunties. And in autumn, you're your parents' parents. And in winter, you're your kids' kids. So these cycles of life, of life and birth and death and resurrection, are occurring all the time. And we often hear at funerals, don't we, that the person who's passed lives on through the people that they've loved. So, so the context, excuse me, <coughs> of Jesus' words occurred uh, today after another bittersweet event of the past few days. And uh, the text that we missed last Sunday that just occurred before our text today from John chapter 12 verses 20 to 36 was the story John's version of the triumphal entry remember that story another bittersweet event there's so much bittersweetness in going on in John even the resurrection of Lazarus was which should have been just an exhilarating event but yet John there's a shadow over it they it precipitates a plot to kill both Jesus and Lazarus then, of course, the anointing of Jesus by Mary of Bethany. But that's, all, that's also bittersweet because the story of Judas planning to betray uh, is enacted. And, and Jesus describes Mary's act as an act of embalming him in anticipation of his death. So now the triumphal entry has just occurred, energized by a crowd of people who have witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. And it just spreads like wildfire through Jerusalem. And the crowds are waving Hosanna to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a messianic proclamation. Now, picture this with me. 164 years prior, a Jewish priest, young guy by the name of Judas, who was nicknamed Maccabees. And Maccabees was a, a name that meant hammer or even sledgehammer. And he successfully led a Jewish revolt against the Seleucid Empire. This was a, a, a state of Greece, the Grecian Empire, originally out of Alexander the Great. And it was led by uh, a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes, who occupied Israel about 164 years before this event that we're reading about today. And he brutally uh, oppressed Israel, suppressed their worship to the point, get this, that he set up an image of the Greek god Zeus in the temple 
and ordered them to worship Zeus. And it was horrific. And so there was a revolt led by Judas against this oppression, and a, which led to a surprising military overthrow of the Seleucids. And they were driven out. And so 164 years before, imagine Judas. He comes into Jerusalem leading his army to loud cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, and people waving palm branches through the city. This was, this image was still so imprinted in the Jewish psyche. And so the Jewish feast of Hanukkah com commemorates this event every year in December. Remember the festival of lights? Now add to it that this is the Passover. And what's the Passover? Well, it was a time for Israel to remember God's deliverance of them from Egypt and slavery. And so every Passover raised expectations in the, uh, the Jewish mind and psyche of hope for another deliverance from oppression and slavery. And this often incited insurrections and revolts at this time of year. So it's, it's electric. So you got Passover, you've got, you know, it's like Hanukkah and Passover come together. It's like Easter and Christmas come together. And, and, and again, the crowd is welcoming Jesus with Hosanna, with these memories, but there's a bittersweetness for he doesn't come in on a war horse like Judas did, but on a lowly beast of burden, a donkey in humility and in gentleness. And in so doing, he was refusing to cater to their nationalistic, triumphalist, violent expectations for him to become king by force, but rather it would only be by love. He would only be king by love. That was the only way he was going to be their king. Calling for them to forgive their enemies, to love them. And within many days, many in the same crowd would be crying out, crucify him, just out of sheer frustration, disappointment, and impatience with him. And to add to all this irony in our text today, we have a crowd of Greeks. Now, who were the oppressors 160 years before? <laughs> exactly. It was the Greeks. And here we have Greeks who come to Jerusalem, who've got a, a hunger and a quest to know the God of Israel. They were often called God-fearers by the Jewish people. And they were interested in Israel's God and in this Passover festival. And they'd heard about Jesus. And they wanted to see him. Wow, this sounded like a great PR opportunity. But then the disciples, uh, when they tell Jesus, he begins to immediately talk about dying. And... Uh, in, and let's look at the verse together. It's from, from the text. We've already read it, but I'd like us to just take another look at this. It's from uh, verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come. This is his response to the disciples' request for some PR. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, there remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, before I read on, 
remember this, the hour has come. Does that ring a bell? Because through John, we've been hearing a different phrase, slightly varied. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. This is, he said that to Mary at the turning of water to wine. And in different times when they tried to kill him. Basically, what he was saying is it wasn't time for him to die yet. But now it changes. He says, my hour has come, which means it's time to die. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So what's going on here? It's a bit of a strange twist that he would begin to talk about dying here. And the, uh, the implication is that Jesus must die. Yes, we know that. He's been predicting that. But also, anyone who follows him must be also prepared to die too. Now, this doesn't sound like good news, does it? <laughs> Have a good day, right? Well, in my 20s, I used to travel around doing these youth, youth rallies and conferences and events for different uh, denominations and streams in the church, mostly charismatic Pentecostal streams, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I used to give these very emotional altar calls where uh, I would I would challenge people with stories like the Moravians, how that they would go and become slaves on these slave islands just to be able to love and serve the slaves. Otherwise, they couldn't even get access to them. Incredible sacrifice. And I would share these stirring stories, and then I would challenge young people who would be willing to suffer and die for the sake of following Christ. And if they were at the altar call, at the end of the service, I'd get them to jump up and cry out, I take the cross. And usually it was one brave <laughs> individual who would start it, and then it would just explode. Uh, through the crowd, and it was very powerful and very moving to watch. And I think God blessed our good intents. It bore some good fruit. In fact, Cheryl Bear told me later, years later, that she was in one of those meetings. <laughs> and it actually really impacted her. Uh, miracle of miracles. But I, I used to pre preface this dramatic moment with this caveat. You know, are you, are you ready to die for Christ? Are you ready to suffer for Christ? And then I'd say this, it's kind of like out of the sight of my mouth. I said, guess what? You're going to die anyway. Uh, guess what? You're, you're human. You're going to suffer anyway. So the question isn't whether or not you're going to suffer or whether you're going to die. The question is, how do you want to die? Um, the question is, um, I, I mean, who wants to suffer? Anybody? Hands raised. <laughs> who wants to die? I don't. And and uh, that it's it's human not to want to suffer. It's human not to want to die. There's nothing meritorious about it in Scripture, actually, about suffering and about death. But what is greater than suffering and death is not 
that what is greater than my aversion, I should say, to suffering and to death is the longing that I have, that we have, I believe, to live a life of love, to love well, and to follow Jesus. And that love is what conquers evil. Love is what drives out hate. Love is stronger. Love is stronger. And we desire to live in that. And so in my teens, there was this popular movie and book that came out called Love Story. Some of you may be old enough to remember that. Apparently there's a new remix that's come out. But it was, it was, a, it was a romance, yes. It was a love story. And it, but I think there was something beyond just the fact that it was a romance, as wonderful as that was, there was uh, a lot, it re resonated with this longing that we have to, uh, to know that life is a love story and that we're part of it, that we're not in this cold, lonely, arbitrary, random universe, but it's all going somewhere. And Jesus invites us here to be a part of that story and that the suffering and death that we will naturally experience as part of our humanity can be the embodiment of God. It can be included in this love story of the universe. As the Song of Solomon says, love is stronger than death and many waters cannot quench it. So it's not about suffering and death. It's about love and the cost of loving. And the cross that was about to come for Jesus was this stunning revelation of God's love. It was shocking to his generation. And here in Jesus' words, we have a conflation. I like that word, conflate. I've been using it a lot lately. And what it means is, is you take two concepts and they become blended into one. And there's a conflation that happens in this between glory and suffering, between glory and the cross. Jesus says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, or the human one, to be glorified. And when he used that word, what were all the Jews hearing? They're hearing Judas Maccabees coming in, kicking the enemy's butt, setting us free. That's what they were hearing. Right? But he conflates. He does a strange conflation where he takes this idea of glory and he conflates it with the cross by these words. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Well, that sounds like triumph, doesn't it? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now that being lifted up, that sounds like exalted, doesn't it? It sounds like a king being crowned. It sounds like Messiah is here. But John then says he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He was going to die on a cross. And so he conflates this idea of being lifted up in glory as being lifted up on the cross. And so in the cross, the greatest beauty of our world and the greatest horror came together. The Greek word for glory there, doxa, is literally the expression of the beauty of God for the world and God's love. God's love for the world would finally 
and ultimately be revealed in Christ's death on the cross. And it would irresistibly draw all the nations, including these Greek people. And the invitation is for each of us to be a part of that love story, not by deliberately seeking out suffering and death as martyrs, but simply by choosing to follow Jesus in a life of love. And sometimes it will inconvenience us and there will be discomfort and there will be pain and there'll be heartache and sorrow and rejection. But we have the promise always that there is never any death in love that isn't accompanied by a resurrection. And by these acts of love will drive evil out. Paul said, be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The prince of this world, hatred, violence is being driven out. And then we come to perhaps my favorite part of this whole passage. Uh, it's a front row seat that John gives us that the other gospels don't, where Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Uh, no, and he says, uh, Father, should I ask that you save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Let's look at this together. I can find it. Whoops. Uh, bear with me here. So uh, I, I guess I didn't include it in the slideshow, but remember that verse as we read it together. It was where the, uh, uh, the it says Jesus was troubled. And, and then he says, what shall I say? And I don't know. I find this very comforting uh, because Jesus, let's face it. He was the most courageous person who ever lived, bar none. Because he lived in complete love, he was completely secure in the Father. And yet John, in his front row seat as an eyewitness of this embodiment of God in the world, saw that God was troubled. God was literally distressed to the point of having no peace. That's literally what the Greek word means. He had no peace as he anticipated the horror of his impending suffering and death. To the point that he, he was already beginning to ask for deliverance. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? This is like a preview of what happened in the garden. <clears throat> so in your suffering and in your death, can you relate to his prayer? I sure can. I prayed it many times where I've said, Lord, uh, can you deliver me from this hour? Oh, wait a minute. That's why I'm here. <laughs> How many times in my life I've been there where it's been stressful, excruciating, anguish. And I said, Lord, deliver me from this. Oh, wait a minute. This is why I came. This is why I'm here. So he's conflicted because on one hand, he knew his mission, but on the other, in his humanity, he's shrinking in horror from what is before him. But not only is human. But as God, remember a few weeks ago, Flo mentioned that when Jesus wept with Mary and Martha over Lazarus, remember that she said that it wasn't only Jesus in his humanity, it was also Jesus as God 
weeping. Well, I believe in, in a very mystical way, there was a stress that God was engaged in, it, that God is stressed with us. God is anguished with us. God is distressed with us in our humanity, in our embodiment. So what does that say about the distress that you and I feel? The psalmist said it in this, these words, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. In all of their distress, he was distressed. This is embodiment. And in that distress that we encounter, just simply by living in love, God is with us, de-stressed with us, feeling our pain. We're not alone in that. Even in our forsakenness and our abandonment, even that we feel by God, God is with us in that. As we see by the audible voice of God that's in this text and the angel that came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. A quick story to wrap up. When I was 19 in Bible school in Melodyland in Orange County, California, I suffered a nervous breakdown. I was only 19 years old, living in a city of, what, 13 million people at the time and leave, leaving a small town in northern Alberta. But there was also a constitutional defect, uh, genetic disorder, neurological disorder, and I just snapped. It was the first of two severe breakdowns I have suffered in my life. And having no idea what was happening to me, I was on an airplane flying home. I was on a plane flying to Edmonton from LA, 19 years old. And there was this indescribable pain in my heart that was crushing me. I just felt like I was being crushed. It was like an unbearable weight. And I literally, it got so severe, I thought I was having a heart attack and I was dying. And similar to Kathleen's description at the talent show, I felt like my spirit was leaving my body. And at that point, I felt at the, an indescribable comfort and presence. And I heard these words. I don't know if it was audible or just, I think it was just strongly in my mind and heart. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Followed by these words. It is good for a man to bear the yoke when he is young. It's from Lamentations chapter 3. You are dying this death so that many will live. And when those words came, I felt like I came back into my body. And there was a new grace that accompanied me for the rest of my trip as I went home. Years later, when I was getting a stress test for my heart, my doctor told me, that they found this irregular rhythm in my heart and they said that it very well could have been at some point I had suffered a heart attack in my life. And I, my mind immediately went back to that moment on the airplane. And, and I realized that no, God hadn't caused my breakdown and that suffering and that pain. But it was part of the life that I was living, a life that I'd committed to loving. And that somehow through that death that I had had died, including any other suffering and deaths I have and would experience, God had mercifully and graciously included it in the story of God's relentless and redeeming love to restore a broken world. 
And that's his, his invitation, God's invitation to each of us. Amen. So to, to move into our reflection time, I'd like to invite you to reflect. Uh, Joanna and Shalisha have introduced me to a beautiful poetic man uh, as a Facebook site named Scott Erickson. I've been enjoying a lot of his writings in this phrase stood out. I can't read the whole poem. I don't have time today. But this particular phrase stood out the other day as it relates to our time today. And it's simply this. And love is constantly orchestrating your homecoming. And what I'd like to do is just invite you into a couple of minutes of silence just to reflect on that before we go into our breakouts and uh, reflect as you do on this phrase, on the season you are in. Perhaps it's spring, summer, autumn, or winter. And that not only means in terms of your whole life, maybe you wanna do that. I'm very clearly sensing Kathleen and I are well into autumn, to time of eldering, mentoring, and harvesting the fruits of our life to serve the next generations. It's our longing. But it's also in terms of your smaller deaths and resurrections that are contained within our whole life that you may be experiencing in that season. So listen in the silence for how love might be at work in this season on your behalf, orchestrating your homecoming. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? <laughs> 